Amen. Good morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. That's where we'll be this morning as we make our way verse by verse through the book of Luke. Um, This is where God has us, and we are one verse at a time moving through Luke's gospel and um, understanding what it means by what it says as we explain the text and what's there. We want to hear from God, and we want to hear from his words, um, not from my own words or from anything else, but from him. And so we are explaining this understanding it and understanding the implications and the applications for our lives. And so we're in Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. This will be the last section in chapter 20, and we move into chapter 21 out of 24. And so we're moving along. Before I get into this and read it, just for a moment, I want to give a really a a round of applause to our men's ministry team um, for leading all the work on our new building. Can we say thank you to them? Um, It's just incredible, um, this church and the the level of leadership that exists um, throughout this uh, church and the various ministries that various people lead. Uh, But our men's ministry team in particular are heading up all of our work for our building um, and, um, and, and, you know, I'm just showing up just like the rest of you are when they tell us what to do, but they've been doing an incredible job. Um, they put together a work day Saturday. I know it was a quick turnaround. Um, I think it was like a day notice because it was our first work day out of the month. And, uh, we had 15 to 20 people show up, um, just from hearing about it the night before. And, uh, it looks like a tornado hit, um, or we should say hurricane, I guess, hit um, our property because all the limbs, I, I mean, we've just brought up those limbs. I mean, you can see this, the building from the street. Um, it, it's just one day of work and the place is, is already had so much progress be made. And so it's just incredible, um, you know, those, that leadership of those guys, the leadership of those men, um, Jeff and Richard and Jack, um, I'm sure I'm missing some people, but um, I just want to encourage you to um, a few things. Make this building your own. I tell people, um, this is not my building. This is not our elders building. This is our building. This is our church's building. I want you to treat it like it's your home. If you see something that <laughs> needs to be fixed or cleaned up or, or something needs to be done, you don't need permission. Um, you can do it. Treat it like it's your own home, and it is um, your home. Um, but also, I just want to encourage you to come and work this month. Um, you don't have to wait for the work days on Saturdays. Uh, you can contact any of those men, um, particularly the leaders of the men's ministry, and you can show up throughout the week and just do some work. Um, we'll give you the code to the door, the keys to the door, and, and you can just go on in or you can do the work that needs to be done outside. And um, So just, uh, just this month and really you know, after this month, just feel free to, um, to work. And let me encourage you to do that because one thing that I learned yesterday, I had a few things to do and we had, you know, learned about this work day last minute and my family went out there and, uh, we ended up being out there. I think, um, I was there with, uh, Adam Pinino for me, Chad and Adam, um, were there, um, a, a few hours longer than when everyone else left. Um, and we, I, I think we were there from like nine to maybe, I don't I was there from nine to maybe three or something. And I'll tell you what, when you get home, you're just so satisfied with the work that you've done. Um, and there's such unity um, that exists among people that you're laboring with. And so, so often I think we want to, you know, we think it'd be better if we serve ourselves. Um, and that we, we do need to do things for our own lives and our own selves. But let me tell you, I think you'll be richly blessed by serving with others and serving something um, that's going to benefit so many others. Um, I think you um, experience such a a deep joy in the Lord um, and fulfillment um, when you serve the Lord like that. So my encouragement to you is is just um, to be a part of that this month. It's going to be fun. So 
Once again, thank you to those men, and, uh, and I'm excited to, to work uh, this month. Yeah, we can give them another round of applause. So let's move into the text now. We've got um, not many verses, but we have got such a significant truth before us this morning. And so we got we to gotta move here. Let's read Luke chapter 20, verses 45 through 47. You ready? All right. And even if you weren't, I was going to read it anyway. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense Make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now what we're seeing in this particular passage, the main point of this section and this unit, the authorial intent, is Jesus here is making clear to his disciples to avoid false teachers. He's making clear here to avoid false teachers while also condemning them. He is speaking of the condemnation of the false teachers and he is telling his disciples to avoid false teachers. This is very clear. It just doesn't take much for you to see this. All you got to do is read the verses and you can see pretty clearly what the point is. But I think the progression of the context of what we've been studying also helps inform this. And so what I want to do is not really give much of an introduction here today. I just want to kind of move right in and all the context work and the relevance work and the doctrinal work we'll kind of do underneath the headings as we move into this. So let's move into it right away. We're going to see three headings that really make clear this particular doctrine that's being taught here, which is to avoid false teachers and then therefore the condemnation that they'll receive. The three headings that kind of help move us along through the text Our number one is what we'll see is the warning in verses 45 through 46a. Secondly, we'll see their ways, meaning the false teacher's ways, in 46b through 47a. And then we'll see the wrath, that is the wrath that will be coming to them in verses 47b. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. I'm not making anything up. You'll just see that this is what the text says. We're explaining it, understanding it, and then understanding the implications for our lives. So let's start with the warning. Verses 45 through 46a. It says in verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, He said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want to get us into this scene. This is the end of the day on Wednesday. Every few sermons, I'll kind of re-catch you up as to how you can see where we're at regarding the days. I don't want to do it every time, but... I think it's helpful for you to be able to see that yourself. But we're at the end of the day. We're at the end of the day on Wednesday. Jesus is going to be crucified early morning Friday, so we are very close to the crucifixion, and we've just come out of a context where all religious major 
groups of leaders of Judaism have tried and failed to trap, to trick, to eliminate, to discredit Jesus. And they've done it all in a number of ways. You know, they've all tried, they've all failed. The Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They've all tried. They've all failed. And they've tried to do this in really a very comprehensive way. They've tried to discredit Jesus lawfully. They've tried to discredit him and indict him politically. They've tried to trap him and embarrass him theologically. And they've tried to trap him morally. And they've all failed. And what Jesus is making very clear is that he is in control. His word will stand. His truth will stand. But more than anything, he's in control. So that when he goes to the cross, we know for certain that it's not a victory of the enemy or any of those groups. In his timing, he will go to the cross, not because they overpower him, not because they trick him or trap him, not because he's guilty, but because he chooses to go and to die for repentant sinners. He's in control. Now in verse 40, as we move to the end of all of these attempts of chapter 20, verse 40, we read that at that point, after failing over and over again, they no longer dared to what? Ask him any questions. You're not going to trap him or trick him to indict him and to kill him and to eliminate him. But so what they're going to end up doing is lying and then using force. Um, and so there's no more questions. At this point now, Jesus goes on the offense. He begins to take initiative where he's indicting the religious leaders. And there's three sections of this indictment. The section that we covered last time, verses 41 through 44, where Jesus makes clear that the scribes have failed to understand that the Messiah would be God himself. He would be, through the line of David, an actual human being, but he would be the sovereign Lord at the same time. David called him Lord. This is, there's no other way to explain this, but God coming in the flesh, a true descendant of David and the true sovereign Lord. And so the, the Sadducees, they attempt to trick Jesus by saying, by, by asking a question about the resurrection. The scribes, after Jesus um, really embarrasses the Sadducees, the scribes say, you've answered well, Jesus by refuting the Sadducees. And then Jesus speaks to the scribes and says, not so fast. You've failed to understand the, the Messiah and his coming and the right expectation was that he wouldn't be just a royal, a regal, an earthly, a political king to come and give you earthly prosperity. He would be God himself coming to make men right with God. He would be through the line of David, but he would be the sovereign Lord. They failed to understand it. That's the first indictment. We find ourselves now in the second one, where Jesus, really speaking to his disciples, indicts the scribe. And Jesus here is making clear to avoid them and making clear their condemnation. The third indictment will be next week as we will see Jesus make clear their corruption regarding wealth. We often look at this passage in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 21 as maybe an instruction as to how to give. And uh, perhaps there's some principles there that can help us. But Jesus is mainly indicting the rich religious leaders. After that, 
for the rest of the day Wednesday, after these three indictments, Jesus is going to give a series of warnings, general warnings to his disciples. At that point, he will no longer be speaking to the religious leaders. It's over. It's done. He's made all of this very clear. He's going to be giving these general warnings to his disciples. And after these general warnings, chapter 22, we're into Thursday. And at that point on Thursday, we go to the upper room, and then we go to the garden, and then we go to the trials, and then we go to the cross. So indictments, a series of three of them, and then Jesus speaks to his disciples for the rest of the time until Thursday begins. And he gives them this very clear set of warnings. Now, what we understand about the scribes through this indictment, and really all of these leaders, is that they're very squirmy theologically. They're squirmy. You can't pin them down, right? They adjust. They're like chameleons. They're wanna be, they want to be received by everyone, and so, therefore, they really stand on no particular convictions. They move around. They adjust. They want to be liked. They don't want to stand on God's truth and be faithful. You know, true followers of Christ are to stand on the truth no matter the cost. Those who want to be seen as followers of God and are really having alternative motives, they adjust theologically. You can't pin them down on anything. They're squirmy. They'll say general statements, and then they'll tweak them based upon who's listening. And so their goal is to be popular and accepted. And many people at this time um, accepted these answers from these religious leaders, and Jesus is making clear they have, um, they're problematic. They have denied the Christ, and they've got a, um, some things really wrong with their hearts. Jesus is indicting these leaders, and part of that is their squirminess theologically. And that's what Jesus is going to address really today. He's going to adjust really the, the, um, their failure in doctrine as well as their failure in their lives. But you see, this is very relevant for us because many people today say that we shouldn't be dogmatic about doctrine and um, that that would be a wrong thing to be dogmatic about doctrine. It's really actually publicly accepted that there are so many variations. We can't really know what's true. They believe this. We believe slightly different. We believe slightly different. We believe slightly different. Can I tell you, friends, that if God gave us his word, God gave, made his word clear so that his people would understand his word, so that they would follow him and honor him, um, the Bible is not unclear we can have crystal clarity and soundness about biblical doctrine, and you should be able to stand on it and not budge, right? You are not to be um, only dogmatic, but yeah, bulldogmatic. And that's not a bad thing. You have to understand that. That's not a bad thing because by doing so, you will save yourself you will save those around you. You will honor Christ. You will hinder the work of the enemy. You don't buy the lie that you can't know doctrine 100%. The Bible is clear. It's clear. That's how God made it. And so it's just way too normal for people to believe that there's no true meaning and one true interpretation of the scriptures and that the scriptures are not clear. You should understand them literally. The plain meaning is the meaning of scripture. It's not allegory. There's some meaning behind it. Over-spiritualize everything, right? You read the text and the, the plainest meaning is probably the right meaning. So, 
we need to have clarity about this. This is very relevant because what Jesus is doing is indicting the, the scribes and telling his disciples and the people around them to avoid them and their teaching, okay? And we need to do the same thing in terms of people who teach falsely and people whose lives don't match what they need to, meet, to match in order to lead God's, God's people. So that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this section. He's warning his disciples to avoid false teaching and then he's teaching them about the condemnation that is coming to these false teachers. So as we move into this section, let's look at verse 45. Jesus is saying here, in the hearing of all the people. So the way that Jesus chooses to address false teachers is speak to his disciples very explicitly with those who might not be his disciples listening in. And that kind of honestly pictures a little bit what um, we experience in the church, right? That we hear from God's word as his disciples, while some people who might not know Christ, visitors are coming in and observing and hearing, um, but um, that's how it should go. We address everything from the word of God to the disciples to build them up, make them holy, to follow Christ, and others come in and listen. And Jesus is really doing that here. And he's warning his disciples. It says, and in the hearing of all the people, so that word and in the beginning of verse 45 really connects us to the previous section, right? So he indicts them for not having the proper expectations of the Messiah. They wanted a regal, earthly, royal king who would give the nation of Israel prosperity. They didn't expect God coming in the flesh through the line of David to make sinners right with God, right? The problem through the Old Testament was God disciplined his people because of their disobedience, and they became a weak nation. But God promised the Messiah, and their thought was, man, when the Messiah comes, all of our sin will be made up for by this Messiah coming and repositioning our nation to prosperity, and that will resemble God's acceptance of, of us, Israel. What they didn't understand was that their sin in the Old Testament, their disobedience, the most serious consequence was what, is that it made them guilty before God. And that the Messiah would come and make them right before God. A true king would come and give them right standing with God, right? Restore them spiritually. And so they had a wrong expectation. They didn't know their sinful condition. They didn't know that they needed to be saved. And they certainly didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah who came to do that. And... After he got, he's finished saying that, verse 45, he turns to his disciples after he indicts the scribes for their false understanding of the Messiah. He turns to his disciples and speaks about the scribes in the hearing of all the people to beware of them. So you get how Jesus is indicting them and then saying, to his disciples, beware of them. This is just another indictment of them while at the same time a help for his disciples. And so Jesus here, let me tell you, in this section, he's not hesitant. He's not um, tolerating. His statements are true. He is like that of a prophet. He is indicting them and he is warning them his disciples, to beware of these religious leaders, the scribes. And let me tell you before we even take a step further that this is nothing new. This is a doctrine we should understand. There are false teachers. The definition of a false teacher is teaching what is false. And the only response that the scripture ever gives towards false teachers is avoidance and condemnation. You understand that doctrine about false teaching, right? 
Let me show you an example. Flip in your Bibles, if you can, to Ezekiel chapter 22. Ezekiel chapter 22. Sorry. Ezekiel chapter 22 is not very far to the left. So it's towards the end of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 23 through 31. I want to read this. Ezekiel chapter 22. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. You want to know what's true about false teacher? They devour human lives. That's why there's no tolerance. There's only rejection and condemnation. And so don't Don't let your conscience be seared by a false version and fake version of worldly love when it comes to false teaching. It's not loving to accept false teaching because false teaching devours human lives. It says, they have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law. And have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths. So that I am profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves. Tearing the prey. Shedding blood. Destroying lives to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing a false vision and divining lies from them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord God has not spoken. The people of the Lord have practiced extortion. They've committed robbery. They've oppressed the poor and the needy. They've extorted from the sojourners without justice. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord. This is the common approach towards false teaching. And we see some characteristics there. They say, thus says the Lord when the Lord's not spoken. From dreams or visions. It's not the only way. It's just teaching falsely. And there's many versions of Christianity that teach falsely. Right? So go back to Luke here. Jesus is, I mean, this is just serious. Jesus is being truthful. Jesus is not being shy. Jesus is being specific. Jesus is protecting the flock, right? My, my, my hope is that it would be the same for us. Side note, I want a flock that identifies and rejects false teaching, right? We need to be those kind of people and we'll be strong in the Lord. He's telling his disciples with others around them who may be curious maybe even taking steps towards Christ, maybe even um, becoming true disciples, to beware of false teaching and the crowds are listening. Now, why do we say false teaching? Well, verse 45, hearing of all the people, this is the second indictment after Jesus making clear to them they've misunderstood the Christ. He says to his disciples, what he says is, beware of the scribes, right? Beware of the scribes. Why do we say he's warning against false teaching? Because that's exactly what the scribes did. They taught. This is a warning, and this passage is clear because of who the scribes are. And what he's saying about the scribes or how to respond to the scribes, this word in the Greek means 
to stay away from. The beware here is not like, hey, keep your eye out, right? This is stay away from, guard against. Um, This is a vigilant effort not to follow. That's the definition. A vigilant effort not to follow, right? Not, hey, put it aside, pretend it doesn't exist, doesn't matter. And the verb here, beware, a vigilant effort to oppose or not to follow is also in the present tense, which means it's something that should be done continually, consistently in the lives of true disciples, right? And the warning is to stay away from who? The scribes. Now, the scribes were made up of Pharisees, right? Not every Pharisee was a scribe, but the scribes were made up of of the Pharisees. And the scribes were what? I've already mentioned it. They were teachers. The scribes were teachers. They would interpret and teach the law of Moses. And you have to understand that the scribes established the framework of all of the Jewish system. Listen now, listen close. The scribes established the framework of the entire Jewish system. Um, they, 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 They created, in a sense, the Pharisaical system by their interpretation of the law, which was a distortion, right? They were called to um, what they thought would, um, was, uh, you know, would get them power and success and wealth. They, they would move their teaching um, and adjust it based upon personal um, gain. So this was for personal gain. This was, they created a workspace righteousness. They, um, various things, the Pharisaic system, right? They were the most influential, the scribes were, in the religious, in the theological, and in the social um, community. You have to understand, the scribes' teaching infiltrated every part of society because this was a theocracy, right? The Jewish Israel was a theocracy, meaning the law of God was the law of the land, right? So... Um, obviously, it didn't turn out very well, right? For them, I wish that the whole world would be still under a theocracy. It's how it was created to be, right? Under God's law, that we would live by God's law as the law for the land. But we're sinners. People are sinners. So this was a theocracy. God's law was the law of the land, and the scribes were the one who interpreted the law and governed the people by the law. So this would affect everything, religiously, socially, legally, right? So the scribes were also called, do you know? Lawyers. They were the lawyers. Why? Because they, they handled the law, Right? And so this was everything from religious matters, theological matters, social matters, legal matters. What they, the scribes, influenced was every corner of society. And the community listened to them. Now you have to listen here. What Jesus is saying here then is shocking. Because these were the people who so many people thought, Oh, yeah, they're teaching God's law. We should listen to them, right? They were accepted in the culture, in the community. They were accepted as popular, accepted, religious teachers. Most people in the community um, saw them and thought that they should follow them. And so Jesus here exposes that they were distorters of the law, false teachers. They teach what is false 
They had the wrong expectations of the Messiah. They didn't know God. They didn't understand their sinful condition, their need to be saved. They don't know the true way to heaven and they're hypocrites. The outside of the cup is unclean while the ins I mean, is clean while the inside of the cup is what? Unclean, right? They don't care about their true condition and standing before God. They just want the appearance of godliness for personal gain. So these are false teachers. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, there is no benefit whatsoever for you being involved and listening to false teachers. Listen to the word of God. There's no benefit at all. And Jesus is saying, avoid them. And Titus tells us to refute them. Psalm 1 tells us, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so the Bible teaches this truth, and Jesus is teaching his disciples to stay away from false teachers who will lead people to hell and into sin, and into judgment, and into error. And this really isn't anything new. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. I mean, let's just go all the way back to the Pentateuch, right? Let's just go all the way back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If a prophet or a dreamer, dreams of dream, dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and a sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not, what? Listen to the words. And even on the screen, Jeremiah says, I'm just moving a little bit more into the New Testament, I mean, the Old Testament. The prophet who prophesies falsely and the priests rule at their own direction. My people love to have it so. You have to understand that our sinful nature will love false prophets because of what comes out of their mouths. That's why there needs to be a warning not to listen to them because they, they appeal to the flesh. And so people will love what they're teaching. That's why it's a fight for you to avoid them. But what will you do when the end comes? When the judgment comes? And again, Jeremiah 14. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying a lying vision. They might believe it. Doesn't make it true. A worthless divination and the deceit of their own minds. And so this is God's word. Jeremiah 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the prophets who prophesy to you, filling your mind with vain hopes, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And here's what they say to those after speaking those visions to the people. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, don't worry, it's going to be well with you. Are always assuring people that it's gonna be, life's gonna be great for them. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his, his own heart, they say, no disaster is gonna come upon you. Don't worry. No disaster will come upon you. Right? It's going to be good. It's, it's okay. Right? For they are among those, them who, who stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to, uh, I'm sorry, for who among you, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his what? Word. Or who has paid attention to his word? And listened. 
I did not send these prophets later on in Jeremiah 23, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed what? My words to my people. That's what the true teacher does. Why is it so important? Well, let's move to the New Testament for just a minute. Paul tells the elders in the Ephesian church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And to the church in Corinth, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now listen to this. No wonder they disguise themselves as Christians, right? Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. I could go on. Galatians 1 speaks of a distorted gospel. 1 Timothy 4 speaks of a conscience that's seared by the world and that they've departed from the true faith. 2 Timothy says that they have the appearance of godliness and to avoid them. Jude, really the whole book is really uh, uh, about this, um, to, that they reject authority. 2 Peter, all of chapter 2, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. 2 John there will be many deceivers in the world. That I've read that. And um, don't, don't unify with them. Avoid them. And so what we need to do is reject false teaching. This is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Reject it. Avoid it with all vigilance. Refute it. And then he's speaking of their condemnation here. Beware means, um, like I said, to vigilantly avoid them. And um, can I tell you just for a moment that this is why it's the most important thing that you have to understand is the word of God because you need to have discernment and you need to have courage to not go down the trail of false teaching and to even stop it. And that's why don't pay attention to anything else in terms of people's ministries except for the teaching, right? So like there's a lot of um, various aspects that people look at in terms of ministries. Um, you need to understand what's being taught. That's the most important thing. That's what Jesus died for. He did a lot of signs and wonders and miracles and they loved him for it. And then he taught and they killed him for it, right? It's the teaching of the word of God that shapes God's people and it's what Satan opposes the most. And that's why teaching must be expository. Just the explanation of the word because anything other than expository preaching, you have to understand expository just means to explain, right? And so anything other than that is not explaining the mind of God. It's maybe using the mind of God and the preacher's own mind to teach a particular thing. You need to see the verse. It needs to be explained and then it needs to be applied. Very simple, right? And uh, many people will come for the first time here. They say, you know what's different about your church? It's very academic. I said, I know that you, you think like that's the way of you processing. It. It's not academic in that sense. Is what you're understanding and what you're seeing is something that's not just application. You're seeing something be explained. That's the difference. It's not academic. It's just we're sticking with the text. We're starting with the text, staying with the text, and explaining that text the whole time. We have no liberty but to preach the mind of God from the word of God, right? So that's what you have to understand. But I also need to tell you that people can use verses to distort um, and to use God's truth to do something else with it than what it really means. The idea is in like Nehemiah chapter eight, where they opened the book. He read from the book 
and he gave them the sense or the idea, the understanding of the book, right? That's what needs to happen from the word. So we declare the truth of another. We're not entitled to our own thoughts. We declare the mind of God in the Holy Scriptures. We explain the meaning of the text. We see from the text, you should be going home, seeing from the text, understanding there's one main point, you should be able to say it when you go home. You should be able to go home and say, what was the main point, honey? Avoid false teachers. And then you should ask the question, did you see it from the text? And you should say, yes, right? That, those are the two things. One main thrust from every passage, one dominant thought from the author, and you should be able to see that it's coming straight out of the word. And my tone should match the tone of the text. You say, why is he angry all the time? I'm not angry all the time. We've just been in these texts where Jesus is doing nothing but indicting. When Jesus speaks of happy things, I'll be happy. My tone is going to adjust based on the text, right? I don't just wake up and say I'm having a bad day, so I'll be mean today, or I'm having a good day, so I'll be nice today. My tone will constantly adjust with whatever the tone of that section of Scripture is, right? That's how it needs to be. Everything is dictated by the text. This was not the case with the scribes. They were teaching the law of Moses and distorting it for their own personal gain to control the narrative, to have the control and the inheritance of Israel. Jesus is saying there's only one thing that you need to do with false teachers, and that is avoid them. Now, all of that out of a verse and a half. But I want to give you some very practical things in these next verses, right? Beware of the scribes. Jesus says this to all the disciples or to the disciples in the hearing of all the people. And he tells them to avoid these teachers of the law, right? But then secondly, we see after the warning, which is clearly a warning, we see their ways, their ways. Verses 46b through 47 he says, who walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, in the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. I mean, that's just a list of characteristics. Stay away from them. Here's what they're like. Right? So this is just describing their ways. Well, after he clearly tells the disciples to avoid them and the crowd listening. He speaks of the characteristics of these false disciples. Mark 12 is a parallel passage to this section. So is Matthew 23. You can go there at another time. I, I, I read the whole chapter of Matthew 23 in the first service. Um, we don't have time to do it here. Um, but you can see the full force of this section, which is only a you know, a few verses here. In Matthew 23, you could say, well, why is he being, you know, why, how do we understand this tone here? Um, look at Matthew 23 and you can understand the tone. Don't do it now though, because you got to listen to me right now. Um, but you can read it later. That's the parallel passage. But from Luke's passage alone, we understand really five features of false teachers, right? There's five of them here. You could probably slice it a different way, but so what are these features here that Jesus is pointing out about these false teachers? Okay, and these are important for you to know. Okay, these are important for you to recognize and you should write these down and you should remember these. Okay, I don't have time to go th through them extensively, but I'm gonna mention them and give them a bit of an explanation. There's five of these features. Number one is religion. Number one is religion. Verse 46b, beware of the scribes, that was 46a, who like to walk around in long, what? Robes. Okay, let me just tell you this, that what, this is not just, this is not just um, meaningless speech, right? This is what was commanded um, for Israel, they would wear robes and they would put tassels or fringes on the robes. Jesus wore a robe like this, Matthew chapter nine, right? Verse 20. 
And the tassels or the, the fringes were to remind the people of the commandments of Moses. So these are the teachers of the law. They wear these long robes. The fringes or the tassels are supposed to remind them of God's commandments. It's not a bad thing to wear these. Um, it's not a bad thing for them to want to remember the commandments of the Lord or to be holy, right? It's not even a bad thing to be an example to others as maybe a step further in terms of holiness and devotion to the Lord. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, right? But their desire was not genuine maturity and holiness, right? It was religion. So here's what they, let me show you this in numbers, just as proof for you. Numbers chapter 15, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments, right? And throughout the generations to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, it shall be a tassel uh, for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them and not to follow after your own heart or your own eyes, which is uh, you, you are inclined to whore after. Um, so you shall remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. That's what it's supposed to be, a, a reminder. And so these scribes then put tassels on their robes and they made their tassels, Mark, Matthew's account tells us in Matthew chapter 23, long. Luke is telling us here that they've got these long robes, expensive robes. So they got these long robes, right? And they're putting these tassels on them, which... God truly meant for genuine holiness and good, and they are using them to serve their own flesh by making the tassels super long so people look at them and say that they are, uh, you know, to use for their own picture of religion and power. Um, we remember the, the law of Moses more than anybody else, and we you know, um, and, and it's not in a genuine way like, hey, we really want to stick to the word of God. It's, it's um, uh, we have the power. You should listen to us, right? And so this is what's happening here. It's the, this appearance of religion. And um, they make their tassels longer and longer to be seen, right? And so they got these fen fancy expensive robes. Not bad to have a robe. Jesus had it. They got the tassels. Not bad to have the tassels. Not bad to be an example to the flock. But these leaders are purely religious. And you might say to yourself, well, you know, some of these other false teachers, they, they, are they religious? How do we, you know? Um, and the, the common theme is the same, is that the religion is, is, to, um, is to, for personal gain. It's not because one wants to genuinely be right before, before God. Can I tell you this? Because this is so important. I don't have a long time for this so, to explain all this, but I need to say this. You must understand that this is part of it. You have to understand that this is part of it. Religion is going to be part of it. That's what makes somebody a false teacher that they're claiming to teach the words of God, but then uh, but using them wrongly or using it for personal gain. But there's an element of religion always involved because I think that this is what really tricks people. This is where you fail to identify somebody as a false teacher because you see the religion and you say, well, they're not so bad. They're a pretty good guy. They said God. They included a Bible verse. They seem pretty kind. The question is, is this, is what they're teaching, does it square with scripture? Is it the right meaning? Is it the actual teaching of, of what the scripture means in that passage or section? Is, is, is the content of their faith and their church and their um, approach to the word of God, is that what it actually says and means by what it says? You have to understand that religion will be part of it. 
you can't assume that because that there's an element of God in there that you, you got to let them off the hook. No, the opposite is true. That's what makes them so dangerous. James says that not many should seek to be teachers because they will incur a stricter judgment. First Timothy and Titus give the qualifications for someone being a teacher. You have to understand that this is part of it. Well, there's a second um, attribute here, and that's attention. They like to walk around in long robes. That's the religious side of it. And then they love greetings in the marketplaces. Greetings in the marketplaces. This is just purely attention, right? The, 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 they were, the religious leaders would actually receive official greetings, and there were special greetings, and there'd be punishment if they weren't greeted rightly. And um, Matthew 23 tells us in this particular topic that it was that they loved to be called rabbi and father, right? Now, listen, there's nothing bad. They called Jesus rabbi. Some of it was for flattery, but the idea is that there are true titles for people who teach the word of God, which are fine and right. The difference is here that they loved being called that, not because of their faithfulness to the Lord, but because of their attention among men. And so they love to be called this father, even father, call me father. That really, what is a father? He's the source, right? They, the provider, he wants, they want to be seen as the source and the only provider of God's, um, you know, direction for the people. They love the attention and, um, and so they want these greetings in the synagogues. Uh, I'm sorry, in the marketplaces. It's a jockeying for attention. False teachers love the attention. They love the applause. They love the, the verbal feedback. They love the, the, the um, respect. And there's an element of religion there. And they're always looking for the attention. The third thing here is the elevation. They want to be elevated. No pun intended, by the way. Number three. Some of you will get that. But that's true. They love elevation. They want to be elevated. They want to be lifted up, right? So they want the attention. They, want, they have the religion and they want to be elevated, they love, it says here, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. I mean, long story short is they would sit on the platforms and they'd be constantly seen and looked at and looked upon. They want to be the most influential person in the sanctuary of the worship, meaning that they literally want to be worshiped themselves, right? But they would also, you guys know from Luke chapter 14, if you remember, right, when Jesus was indicting the religious leaders, there was a U-shaped table. The, the host would sit right in the middle and those who were closest to the host would be the most powerful, influential. And there'd be a kind of like a, a, retro, a, a system that you would return the favor to another, right? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so if you sit, if I put you close here, the next time you have the people over, let me sit close there. And it was all about being elevated, right? This is pride, this is, um, this is their desire to be elevated high. And really, this is pretty, it can be pretty seen here in our current culture in terms of all the celebrityism, in terms of the goal now as being a pastor is to become the celebrity pastor. All right? Just so you know, that's wrong. I mean, I don't know how to, more clearly to say that. That's wrong. To, that is your aspirate, if that's the, what you aspire to in pastoral ministry. The, to aspire to faithfulness is the right goal, right? But to be religious, because that's the means to success, and you use and twist the word of God to do it, to be loving the attention rather than the attention going to God and being a servant to others. And to love being elevated, right? Um, 
and, and the most important person in town is pride. Let me state these last two. Give me a few minutes here. Number four is the corruption. And they devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses, right? They devour widows' houses. What does this mean here? Well, I already told you that the scribes, they were the lead um, influence in society, in the legal matters, and in the religious world. So when someone's husband's would di- husband would die, I mean, this includes everything from, uh, from managing their properties, right? The temple would manage their properties. The, the, they, the widow's house, they would use it for hospitality purposes. They would take advantage of that. They would, the widow would have debts to them because of them helping and their, her husband passing, you know. And, um, and so they would take their home as a repayment. There would be fees for religious and legal advice from them. They'd manage the estate. They would take advantage of the widow's loneliness, right? I mean, all of this. And in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 22, the, the religious leaders were called to take care of the widows, right? And, um, and so they were taking advantage of it. But let me tell you here, really something that is help that, that needs to be said in terms of this is this deals with two aspects, sexual immorality and financial corruption. And let me tell you this, all over the scripture, when you see the indictment of false teachers, it's almost 100% of the time within the context connected to some form of sexual immorality or, um, or wealth. So the motive of the flesh normally for false teaching has something to do with money or something to do with sexual immorality. And let me tell you this, you can just expect when false teaching comes out and then you see all these like sexual immorality and you know, financial corruption, you, just ex- you can learn to expect that. Because listen, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And if there's false teaching, then there's always going to be go- doing, you can expect that that is somewhere behind the curtain. If there's some form of false, intentional false teaching taking place, that is behind the curtain. I will, you know, can almost guarantee that. Why? Because religion is of no help from stopping the indulgences of the flesh, right? So if someone is not truly born again and has the power of the Holy Spirit inside by the gospel and as a pastor consistently studying the word of God so that it affects his own heart, one of the ways I try to stay by God's grace as an example for our flock is because I'm studying this all week long, right? If a pastor is focusing on leadership the whole week, and then teaching what is false, and they don't have the true gospel, and they're not studying the word of God, religion will in no way stop the flesh. So they will almost always be unholy, right? This is what's happening here. Number five, let me just say this, is there's pretension. And for pretense, make long prayers. That's just hypocrisy, right? It's another way of saying the outside of the cup is clean, the inside is dirty, right? There's not a prayer because I need God, I wanna be close to God. It is, I want people to see me as close to God. And so these are the characteristics. Jesus says, stay away from them. Then Jesus describes their ways. And then at the end here, let me just mention it, Jesus condemns them. He says, they will receive the what? the greater condemnation, two things here. This is something that is sure, they will. And there's another aspect here where this is a comparative verb, meaning it's greater than, it's more severe than. And so they will receive a greater condemnation for their false teaching. Jesus and the Bible make um, no other claims but then to reject this. And this is all over the Bible. In Isaiah, false teachers are called muted, mute dogs. Hosea, demented fools. Matthew, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, right? Mark, they're ravenous wolves, blind guides, right? In Acts, they're called slaves of their appetite. In Jude, they're called animals. In 2 Corinthians, they distort, distort the gospel. This is all just from the word of God, right? 
my hope and my prayer is that our church would be discerning and courageous and to know the word of God, to reject it, to recognize the characteristics and to understand theologically and doctrinally what their end will be. And my prayer is that many of them would repent and turn to the truth. And that should be your prayer too, so that God would be honored. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd help us to see this, to follow it, to understand it. There's just no way around this. This, is, this must be in our understanding of our mind. This must be part of our theology. This must be part of our lives, that there is false teaching against your truth. We are called to avoid it, to refute it, to oppose it. We understand the elements and the features of those who teach what is false come from a motive of the flesh. And we understand that those who teach your word falsely are... Um, will be um, uh, punished for it. And so God, we understand this is no light matter and you are training our disciples here just as you've trained yours when you were on earth to have the same response. I pray that we would in Jesus' name, amen.